Hi everyone, and welcome to another installment of Beyond the Headlines. We are the World Bank IMF delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. We are five young Canadians from across the country of different backgrounds and stages of life. We'll be taking you on our journey with us as we navigate international politics and work to represent the voices of Canadian youth at one of the most important meetings of the year. Together, we identified three strategic areas we would like to discuss further with fellow youth delegates and organizations from around the world and with our partners in bilateral meetings throughout the week. They are global governance, fintech and technological innovation, and inclusive economic growth. These three areas were at top of mind for youth and international development. At the beginning of each day, we'll introduce a new delegate and provide you with the highlights of our days as we work to navigate the annual meetings. Good morning and welcome to day one. We're still pinching ourselves that we're in D.C. and we're excited to meet with our first partner, the United Nations Development Program. Rachel Padillo will be our first delegate who will provide a summary of the day, introduce herself and what she was looking forward to to the week, and her thoughts on the meetings. Hi, I'm Rachel. I am a delegate for the World Bank and IMF delegation in 2019 for their annual meetings, and I'm a research and data analyst for the Department of Canadian Heritage. I was looking forward to participating in this summit or conference and annual meetings because I'm not really exposed to global governance issues and foreign policy, so I thought that by participating in YDC, I would get exposure to that and receive training from like senior officials and um, have the opportunity to speak with high-level officials in different institutions and organizations in the international realm. What I'm looking forward to the most is learning from all of these bilateral meetings that we're having. So we have seven or eight so far. We don't know what to expect and you can only prepare so much, but I think that every organization and every official has so much to offer and we can learn so much from them. And by exchange, they can also learn from us, see the youth perspective of certain issues that they deal with. So I'm looking forward to that the most. Why don't you tell me what we did this morning, like what time did you get up and that type of stuff? I actually couldn't get that much sleep because I was so nervous oh, preparing no. for her first bilat and the fact that I had to lead it. I was kind of like the guinea pig case mm-hmm. because it was the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I did was kind of like review my notes and like read up on the organization again mm-hmm. to double check that my understanding of it is correct in order to prepare for like questions that we might have. If they want to test their knowledge about what we know about their organization, it's really good to be prepared coming into these discussions. So that's what I did this morning. After that, we just went to the UN regional office in DC and had our meeting. What did you think of the building, like, or what did you think of the city when we were driving through? The UN building was really nice. It was really empty because it was Columbus Day, and so it was just us, two officials, and the security guard. And we were all so excited to get our guest pass for the UN. We took pictures for social media to show people that we got into the UN conference room. It was nice. The office was really nice because they had a lot of SDG images around. So you really understand the purpose of their team or organization because it's written all over their office. What what was going through your head when you were leading the meeting? 
I was really comfortable because the two officials from the UNDP SDG Impact Group facilitated an environment that was really conducive to our learning. They were very approachable and while they were sharing, they also know how to actively listen to each delegate when they were introducing themselves and expressing their interests and asking their questions. So I was more comfortable than I thought I would be. And then what tips do you have for the next cohort of delegates with bilateral meetings? I would say come prepared, which is an obvious tip, but it's true because if you didn't do your research on the organization, if you didn't know how to craft your questions well, then I don't think you'd get the most out of it as you can had you, you know, made your preparations beforehand and well in advance. So that would be my tip. So what do we think of the meeting? From my perspective, the meeting was really good. My biggest takeaway was when Yassine told us about how they work with private sector organizations and to get them involved in international development efforts, especially meeting the SDGs. That's what I really, really enjoyed. My biggest takeaway from the meeting and the thing that I found was most useful to learn about was how Yasmin she emphasized the good governance as being the key to unlocking all the other SDG goals, because if the institutions aren't in that place to support the sustainable development of all these goals, then they're just going to fall through once these multilateral institutions leave. Like, they can't babysit these people forever. And I found it good to know that they are committed to setting these institutions so they're able to take care of themselves in the long run. Yeah, also they both gave us like really good tidbits from when they were in the field. You know, when I was in Turkey, worked on this project X, Y, and Z, and then Nico would go back and give us, for example, his experience working in Moldova and how they would use different data analytics to track population. So that was a really good addition to get their experience from the field. I really like how she mentioned how the SDGs are interconnected because I know when we all talked about like what our priorities and policies were that we were interested in, we talked about SDGs like separately. So it was nice to see that she was saying how one SDG really connects and leads to another one and by solving one problem you're really helping solve another. Yeah, I think that fit in well with the theme of SDGs themselves, right? Like no one being left behind, but it really takes an intersectoral approach in order to achieve sustainable development. So I think that's like a good precursor into the rest of our week. I was just going to say that I really like what they said about how they help developing countries with their statistical institutions because I think that you can't really manage what you can't measure and I think that data collection is really important when trying to manage improve the SDGs in developing countries. I'm looking forward to the week. We spent a lot of day one craning our necks and ooing and aahing at the architecture of D.C., Today, we have a full day of meetings with the OAS, IMF, and World Bank to see how Canada puts itself on the map on the world stage. Our first meeting is with newly appointed ambassador to the OAS, Hugh Adset. He just arrived in D.C. last week, but is already well-versed on Canada's role in pushing forward a human rights agenda that promotes diversity and inclusion among marginalized populations. I'll hand it over to Lakshmi to give you a summary. I think the main takeaway that I got from our uh, session today on fintech and inclusive economic growth was how fintech is able to now reach populations that were before could not have access to what they call traditional banking due to a plethora of issues. And this will have a great impact, I think, in the long term, both positively and perhaps also negatively to a certain degree. But definitely, I think this is just allowing more people to have access to what I think is a basic right, which is just having basic banking needs and insurance and whatever comes with it. After meeting with the OAS, we had a quick lunch, then headed over to the IMF to speak with Ben Rankin, 
advisor to the executive director at the International Monetary Fund for Canada, Ireland, and the Caribbean. Our fellow delegate Kyle was really excited to sit down with Ben as he's a big fan of the IMF. I'll let him give you a summary. He tells the story much better than me. Where does YDC fit into this? Why did you want to become a part of it? When I started looking at applying to law school, I realized that they do want a lot more than just your grades. They want you to demonstrate that you are a very well-rounded person. And when you go to their law school and you graduate, through being a very well-rounded person, you'll represent their law school and represent their brand well in the professional world. So to show and to become a well-rounded person, I want you to engage in extracurricular activities like this. So what are you looking forward to this week? I'd say I'm looking forward to a few of the bilateral meetings specifically, so the IMF meeting and the World Bank meeting, because I am very interested in fiscal policy. And in this sort of thing, there's not much theory. I'd like there to be more, but in the real world, that's just not how it works. But still, it is nice to see how these policies are applied and knowing where they've evolved in the great thinkers like Keynes and M. Smith, you can see what their ideas have evolved into and how the modern world is incorporating and acting on them. And then, of course, how that evolves alongside our current values in the modern age and how that shapes everything. So you can always find a theory in everything, I find. Very cool. What do you think is at top of mind for Canadian youth? in terms of international development and politics? Mostly, I mean, I don't personally see any specific role for Canadian youth. I'd say at the moment, well, I mean, I don't know, it depends what you define as youth, of course, but I think there's a lot of current issues that are slowly being taken into account by the older generation. Things like women's rights, climate change, minority rights, and the ways that these groups are affected in ways we didn't know before. So I think that's definitely one way that youth can get involved and bring a unique and developing perspective to the international stage. Because I find for senior bureaucrats to empathize with people, empathize with these issues. And I don't know, I think that's the big issue in politics in general, is people, they can't empathize with somebody that they've never seen or experienced. So youth specifically, I think it's important to get in people's faces and communicate in a respectful manner the issues that you've experienced other people dealing with. So you can't empathize with people on a more global level because that's extremely difficult to do. So I don't know, I'm all about a culture of empathy. (laughs) I like that. You can guess it, we had another meeting right after that. But we got to see how the other side works and spoke with Natalie Fernandez and Omesha Da Silva advisors to the executive director about their work in navigating advocacy at the World Bank. We then ended the day attending Analytical Corner, a sort of TED Talk put on by the IMF to further discuss emerging trends in the world of economics and finance. I'll hand it over to Manad, our head delegate, to talk more about this insightful discussion, along with our key themes which we discussed during the week at the annual meetings. My name is Manad Seki. I currently work with Global Affairs Canada in international development, and I truly enjoy my job. And what led me to work or even to participate in this initiative with the Young Diplomats of Canada is I was, I've always had an affinity working with non-for-profit organizations. I was a president of a cultural association for about a year and a half, two years, and I really enjoyed the power that nonprofits can give to all its volunteers. 
And specifically with the Young Diplomats of Canada, they provide us with such a unique opportunity to participate in high-level meetings with officials with whom before we would never have uh, the chance to interact with. So for all those reasons, that's why I was really eager to jump in and take this opportunity and make the most out of it. And what am I looking for towards this week? I would say that one meeting we had this morning with the Organization of American States, getting to see a newly appointed ambassador and his team and discussing current issues with them and having the chance to have good back and forth was really good. But I'm also really looking forward to our meeting with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I think we had a lot of discussions uh, these past few days about private sector engagement towards SDGs and obviously the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a prime example of private sector engagement and philanthropic efforts. So what pushed me to be the head delegate? Uh, first and foremost, I like working in teams and to a certain degree, I like having a certain burden of responsibility. I feel like it keeps me a little sharp. And also, I just had a feeling that with such an organization and the opportunity that going to Washington provided would attract, quote-unquote, the best Canadian youths I could. So I knew that regardless what was going to happen, I would be within a great team. And also, I really liked the fact that as a head delegate, I would be uh, the liaison between YDC executives and the rest of the delegation, but also being able to interact right away with some of our stakeholders that we were going to meet. So that way, two, three weeks ago, I was already talking to them via email. I already got a sense of who they were just by e-communications so that would put me even more at ease when we would meet them in person and overall I think that just summarizes it I really enjoy having the burden of responsibility I knew and I was confident we're gonna have a good team and uh, getting to interact with our stakeholders before our official face-to-face meetings and now in terms of our three main themes for the week If we start by global governance, this is once again in one of the overarching themes we've been hearing these past few days. And it's for a good reason, because global governance, as we found out with one of our meetings earlier, is one of the pillars of all the SDGs. With good governance, countries have almost unlimited capacity. If you manage all of your human capital, natural resources, monetary funds... Uh, anything involving the public administration in a proper, adequate manner. It is so much easier to have good impact assessments, to have predictable results, and also to be able to have lessons learned and to not replicate past mistakes and to be able to innovate in the future. That kind of brings us to our second theme, which is uh, fintech and technological innovation. Those two themes are very apropos, as they say in French, because we see technology just expanding at a such rapid pace. And, you know, every year we have to fit more memory on a smaller space and so on and so forth. But now we're seeing technology take a different accent. Technology is now in the hands of developing countries. And these developing countries are creating tools and apps, software mechanisms to make their lives not only easier, but to make them contribute even more to the global economy. And I think that is the very interesting aspect with fintech and and innovation. And also with modern technology, we're able to solve problems that were deemed impossible to solve just decades ago. So there's a lot of hope for issues ranging from climate change, wastewater management, sanitation, and so on and so forth. 
And our last thing, the inclusive economic growth carries a lot of importance because when we talk about inclusive economic growth, I personally think that doesn't only reflect to developing countries, but to all countries, because a lot of developed countries still have marginalized population that aren't adequately present in our economic sphere, if you will. So ensuring to have proper and inclusive economic growth really starts from providing basic knowledge, basic opportunities, and breaking down barriers for men, women, newly arrived immigrants, people that have been here for generations, and just all over the globe. And I think that will be a determining factor in ensuring sustainable economic growth and avoiding, if I'm being honest, civil unrest to a certain degree, because everyone will feel that they have a stake in the global economy. Day three was another jam-packed but sulfurly enriching day for our delegates. We met with the World Resources Institute to discuss climate change and how it interweaves into international policy. A key thing they emphasized was that environmental sustainability and economic development aren't mutually exclusive. There may be an initial cost associated with new environmentally friendly initiatives, but in the long run, these have a positive economic return. At the same time, we cloned ourselves. Just kidding. We split up our delegation and provided some insights of Canadian youth at the panel put on by Global Voices on the future of work. Panelists and audience members provided their diverse perspectives on themes around mobility, transitions from education to the workforce, and passion versus survival. I'll give you a couple of sound bites to listen to. I think the role and challenge of mobility, I think that's a really good point as we're becoming a global economy and we have young people who are moving between countries and want to seek further opportunities abroad, not just in their home country. I think that it is thinking about, you know, as a lot of young people, we've, we've had the traditional nine to five workforce and that we all must be in the office, we all must be present to be seen as productive and to be seen as adding value to a team. And I think that we need to be thinking, you know, using digital resources to shift the more flexible working around arrangements, thinking about how we can collaborate. We don't necessarily have to be physically located in the same office to actually be contributing to a valuable group of work or to a company. I think the challenge is that such not only is it um, a shift just in our own thinking, it's a physical shift. So I think, um, me personally, I, I have flexible working arrangements um, and even in um, my sort of voluntary role with Global Voices, we're only in the office one day a week, but a lot of our work is email and online. And it's about how you actually build strong, I think, communication skills and digital skills to actually encourage people to think about how work is delivered differently. I, it doesn't obviously get around the immigration barrier. That's probably like a whole other challenge there. But I think it's actually thinking about how we deliver work as it is and challenging the way we've traditionally done things. And going back to your point as well about, I guess, graduating from my program and then working in totally different fields. I guess it's also from an educational standpoint, how are we delivering our educational system and our programs? And it has been typically very theoretical. And, you know, you go and do, a lot of people do law degrees and business degrees. And it's, you know, standard, you finish high school, I know, in Australia, you go straight into a university degree and then you try and work out what career you want to do. Um, but is taking uh, a different approach, taking time off, perhaps going to work first, perhaps travelling and actually thinking about what you want to do before you go into education. We've seen here and we've sort of all mentioned here that perhaps we all need more than education um, as a sort of standard format. We actually need to have some more practical experience and know who we are and what we want. And given that young people will have multiple jobs throughout their lifetime, it's not one sort of standard career. 
um, it's encouraging, I think, the way we design our workforces to actually think that, you know, you can be an engineer and, and go work in a, I don't know, a, a completely different field or you can go do accounting, but how is that applicable? And so actually finding ways to encourage young people to think about how these skills are translatable. And I'm not sure that that's in a standard university degree that's actually made abundantly clear. It's kind of like you enter to your degree and it's very narrow-minded, but no one's actually showing you how those skills can be translated across because they can be. Um, there's just not an open pathway. So I think it's it's about sort of job design and actually giving more practical opportunities so that young people can be part of the conversation of what, what jobs look like in the future. I also would like to complement Anna's points. And on your question, Belle, on the challenge of mobility, myself coming from Europe, I don't see mobility as much as a challenge because uh, we are like, my generation used to travel very easily from one country to the other one just by holding our identification document. And also most of my peers that studied in Italy, they now are like located in different European countries and like they take on like their careers there. So I really see mobility not much as a challenge, although also in Europe, but we still have different languages that might pose obstacles to have complete mobility as happens in the United States. I also see mobility as an opportunity for young people to work, as Anna said, from anywhere. We can work on planes, we can work from the cafe next door, we don't need to be in the office. And actually, many consultants working at the bank, myself included, can not necessarily require to be at work, but we can also work from home. And uh, this also allows me that uh, I'm very passionate about my country to return back home as many times as I want. So I, I don't see necessary mobility as a, as a challenge. On your question related to choosing a particular educational background and not going into that specific job that you thought your educational skills were like targeting to, I just want to mention that one of the conclusions of the World Development Report on the Future of Work that was published last year was that we need always to continuous learning. As Anna said, on-the-job experience, extracurricular activities, engagement in civil society, project management. These are all skills that for sure will be needed in all the different careers and professions that I think ourselves will be taking on. So in terms of mobility, I guess we come from um, different perspectives, uh, especially for marginalized populations who aren't able to maybe access jobs as easily. We really need to be advocates to have that technological access. Um, and I know especially for our indigenous populations, um, if you move off of treaty land, then you lose your status. And that has a lot of repercussions for how you receive benefits too. So there's a lot that needs to be taken into account when we're thinking about what should be made, made accessible in terms of education. Uh, thankfully, a lot of our colleges and universities are adapting and providing those lifelong learning opportunities and distance learning opportunities. But there still is a disconnect, like we're saying, between the education sector and the workforce sector. Universities are very confident that they're providing students with the skills that they need, but only a small percentage of workforces actually see confident students. I think the last survey that went out was that 78% of university deans are very confident that their students are prepared, but only 10% of workforces are actually seeing that happening and manifesting in itself. I myself come from an arts degree, so I have had many jobs, and out of two of those three years, I was doing contract work. 
So we are resilient, but it is finding those opportunities and linkages between the workforce and education. And I think that bridge of communication needs to be opened again to make sure that our skills are relevant. But also it's the beauty of our world. We're able to be able to find jobs anywhere. Um, I was able to work for UNESCO this past year, and I don't think that would have been possible had a while ago, given just the nature of how education works and how those opportunities work. So I think there are improvements that are happening, but we still need to open those bridges of communication. Bill, I really liked your question. I think that you're highlighting the aspect of mobility. I mean, there are just so many ways in which one can unpack it. Uh, so I think the one immediately that comes to mind is just the cost. Like if you're a poor young person living in a village and there are jobs out there in urban areas, how am I actually going to be able to fund, you know, my getting onto a bus or some sort of public transport and actually get myself to the place which actually is where the job is. So I think you hit the nail on the head. And being mindful when we design youth employment programs, being mindful where are the jobs and where are people? Is there a barrier? Are there roads? Is there even a road? So, you know, we did a bank project in Bangladesh and we found that if we gave uh, poor young people in the rural areas a small amount of a transport subsidy to allow them in the season where the crops, that they, you know, their harvest is over and they have a little bit of idle time, it, it allows them to get on the bus and get to an urban area. It actually really impacted their earnings and livelihood. So being really mindful about whether transportation and mobility is a barrier is a really huge issue for design of youth employment programs. And I really commend you for highlighting that. But the other bit of it is, in terms of mobility, is when you look at it from a gender perspective, for example, you may have the means to get on the bus and get to the job, but you're afraid. And this is in a number of developing countries where sexual harassment on the way to work what if the job is in a place where it's dark at night and, and it doesn't feel safe? It's a mobility barrier. It is a really big mobility barrier. And we find these are reasons why women stay at home and will not access that job. So in our programs in the gender group, for example, in the bank, we are thinking very mindfully about can we think about how to make public places safer? Can there be street lighting? Can there be some sort of an alarm system in public trains where you can call somebody if you're being harassed? And the third way, I mean, I know I'm going in all sorts of directions, but the word you used, mobility, is really such a big issue for the design of programs that there are several layers of it. But the third issue is really about access to information. So as a young person, how do I know that actually the job is not in my village, but is in three villages down? And so this is where, again, using sophisticated digital platforms, we are finding that they are getting more and more sophisticated with newer search functions and, and sophisticated algorithms that can actually help them quickly identify. Otherwise, you have to rely on a phone call to your uncle or your aunt to find out where the job is. So, I mean, we can have just a whole session on this issue, but I think it's a fantastic question. And I also loved your question, a very thoughtful question about the difference between a job and your purpose. I ask myself the same question every day. I think we all ask ourselves, right? Is my job just a job? And what is my deeper calling? Like, what is my deeper purpose in life? If I can add to that, I, yeah. mean, I feel extremely lucky because my mother has pretty much given up everything so that I'm in a situation I'm yeah. accommodated in a way that I can look for purpose yeah but I'm not a majority yeah not everyone you're so right 
It's know, a luxury so for a lot of, for, for half the world's, more than half the world's population and especially young people. Mm. It's a luxury to think about purpose, right? And it's, it's survival. It's and survival. It's also, it's also in terms of mobility. So in Europe, you know, when you say the mobility in that sense is not an issue. Well, I would like to say that in Western Europe and the United States, it's not an issue. Mm mobility in that sense, but if you think Eastern Europe, it can be, it can very much be, mm -hmm. and also what about the rest of the world, mm -hmm. right, when you go into the micro level, mm -hmm. a single bus ride, right, and <coughs> the gender uh, dimension to that and so on is very much an issue. Mm -hmm. No, exactly, um, but on the job purpose thing, there's just two quick responses. One, I'm really fascinated, I'm talking to so many people, young entrepreneurs who are kind of doing some cutting edge work in terms of designing apps that do sort of, you know, at the intake level, they help you do sort of self-assessment to see what are your strengths. Like I could be really good at X, but I could be lousy at Y. But a lot of young people are not so self. I mean, we, I, I remember I wasn't when I started. I thought I could do everything. But you know, we all have certain strengths, but how can we be better or how can we guide youth better to realize what is that area that calls that that sort of appeals to them where they would be good at and so now there are new games out there so there's a gamification of doing this kind of skills assessment and we are fascinated with this new world of technology that is helping us become better at doing that kind of screening that will help you determine where your job will match your purpose but the other thing is I'm finding, and I talked to so many new innovative youth employment projects, is this new component that a lot of youth employment programs are introducing in their curricula, which is on mindfulness. So to just being, not just as stress reduction, but just as being so self-aware of what is it really that you would like doing, right? Um, but I'm so mindful also, when I answer your question, to say for a lot of people, it is a luxury to think about that, right? So, I mean, that is really the hard reality. But on your question, Junera, this movement, this constant movement from one job to another, I mean, I think this is where we are headed. This is really, I think the days where you did your education, you went to college, you went to university, you got a job, you were a, a probationer or whatever, and what, what do you call it? Uh, an intern, sorry, in India you use the word probationer sometimes. Um, uh, but you become an intern, then you get promoted, and then you get another promotion, and then you retire and you collect a pension check. That world is over. Like I think that, that was the world of my grandma, but I think it's no longer relevant for the world you are in, right? You will change jobs, you will change even careers. Uh, and so, which is why a lot of curricula now is focusing on being agile. Uh, how quick are you, ad how adaptable, constantly learning. And this other big word that my colleague also mentioned, which was in the World Development Report last time, this big focus on, on not, not just learning when you're in college, but lifelong learning, like constantly learning, because the world is shifting under our feet. Hi, my name's Anna. I'm the Development and Economics Program Manager at Global Voices. Hi, I'm Yasmin. I'm also the um, Development and Economics Program Manager at Global Voices. And we are here um, at the World Bank IMF meeting. So Global Voices is a youth non-for-profit organisation in Australia. And we keen to give young Australians the opportunity to get practical international experience in foreign policy. They can take back into their lives um, in a practical way. And, you know, I guess we 
organised this uh, panel session because uh, we've been coming along to some international multilateral organisation forums and annual meetings for some time now and we've just felt that there hasn't been enough young people and we wanted to start, I guess, paving the way and carving out a space for young people to be more engaged and for our voices to be heard because the time is now. <laughs> By way of my two cents, I would say this brainchild has been a phenomenal product for the Global Voices team, including Anna. I'm excited to come on board last minute and moderate it. It's created a fantastic opportunity to bring about discussion and space as well as creating a platform for, for young people not only to be heard, but to also take charge and lead, I guess. Our delegation was grateful to have the opportunity facilitated by Global Voices in order to provide that perspective on the future of work from Canadian youth. We then ended the day to talk with the U.S. State Department of Economic Affairs to Canada about their efforts to promote education and awareness for youth who wish to build their leadership capabilities and engage in discussions around foreign policy. We also touched on how regulatory compliance processes work, along with the new United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. We're looking forward to meeting with more interesting organizations and fellow youth delegates tomorrow. You must be thinking, wait, it's been three days and I still don't know who this announcer is. Well, I'm Karen Lamola and I'm the communications coordinator for the Young Diplomats of Canada. I'm going to take off my interviewer hat in order to introduce myself. So my name is Karen Lamola. I am from Calgary, Alberta, and I am an intergovernmental liaison for the city of Airdrie, just a little municipality or mid-sized city as we like to call it, um, about 20 minutes outside of Calgary. And it feels really weird to be on the other side of the microphone per se to be telling my own story because I love listening to other people's stories, especially at events like this, which was a bit of my motivation for applying to be part of the Young Diplomats of Canada delegation. Um, I've had opportunities to work internationally before. Most recently, I was working in Bangkok for UNESCO, and organizations that were near and dear to my heart were CSOs, or civil society organizations, and just the work and passion that they put towards um, development and empowering people. Um, and a critical part of this conversation when we're talking about development is the economics of development and the financial implications of the policies that we're putting out. How much is it going to cost to make sure that no child is left behind in education? How much is it going to cost in order to make sure that people don't go hungry? And how much is it going to cost for environmental stability? Um, I really think that the annual meetings by the World Bank and IMF are a great forum in order to facilitate these conversations to make sure that all stakeholders are at the table and a part of the conversation and contributing towards good. So I'm really looking forward to being in D.C. Uh, I've heard quite a bit about it. It seems to be a little bit like Ottawa in terms of being entrenched in history and just having that sense of government. So... Yeah, I'm really excited to listen to people's stories. Um, my background is in communication, so I love just teasing out what's unique in terms of people's perspectives and how they're working to put their own thread in this fabric that we're calling development. I'll put back on my interviewer hat now. Day four was all about sessions to discuss gender equality and Bretton Woods institutions. We met with the Institute for Women's Policy Research in the morning and chatted with Drs. Federica Bindi, Jeff Hayes, and Valerie Lacarte 
about emerging trends and issues around women in diplomacy and foreign policy. Their anecdotes in their own personal careers, along with the evidence they had produced in their research, was really enlightening. The IWPR finds that quotas are effective in increasing representation of women in the public and private sector, but only when they are given meaningful work and equal opportunity. They suggest a quota of at least 30% of females to avoid issues of having token representation on boards, committees, and in the C-suite. An interesting phenomenon discussed was the extent to which women who held high positions in the field of international affairs were able to move forward feminist foreign policies. The data revealed that women holding these roles had a positive impact on international aid, but significantly less in other fields of international policy, including the promotion of gender equity. We then headed to a great discussion around the 2030 agenda and what host countries must now do in order to reach their goals. The seminar was titled Sustainable Development Goals, Making It Happen. The majority of the dialogue was around, you guessed it, the Sustainable Development Goals and what can be done to achieve them in the coming decade. Panelists include David Lipton, Managing Director of the IMF, and Amanda Koji Mukwash, the CEO of Christian Aid, along with representatives from the UN, European Commission, and Citibank. All panelists were in agreement on the importance of multilateralism in achieving the SDGs. I had the opportunity to lead the Organization of American States meeting. We met with Mr. Hugh Adzet, who is the current ambassador and permanent representative, but he had just recently been appointed in August, and he actually only got into Washington just last week, so he was really in a transitional period. And he also had Francois, the acting ambassador, join our meeting to give us more information on the OAS since he's been in the role longer than Hugh has. What I found most interesting about the first five minutes of the meeting was that he was like, you know, what do you know about the OAS? Like, do you even know about the organization? And it was true. Before this meeting, you know, I was assigned to delegate this meeting, and I really haven't heard of them before. And he said that was really popular in Canada, that actual Canadians don't know about the organization, but the Latin Americans really look towards OAS to guide them. So it was funny that, like, Canadians don't know much about their role, but they actually play a huge role outside of Canada. So the key takeaways from the meeting was that Canada plays a multilateral role with finding policies and programs that connect them with other countries. The OAS currently has 34 active members and is built on four key pillars, democracy, human rights, security, and development. And these pillars are important in forming bonds and connections with other countries to advance their specific policies and strengthen collaboration between the member states. So regardless of transitional periods, these are the four key pillars that they always represent. So we had asked them what happens at the OAS during transition period since the federal government is currently having a writ. So currently during their writ period, it does restrict the level of engagement they would have with their member states. They can't commit to anything that they would usually, but this is well known among the OAS member states as they're constantly going through transition periods and elections. So they take that in account when they have meetings with member countries. 
So Key Taker was the OAS, is another organization in the Western Hemisphere that is really important in connecting countries so that they have another place or forum that they can talk about their policies and find ways to support each other. And um, we also realize that the OAS does do a lot of development or implementation work. It's really just a forum for engagement. And that was one of our key takeaways since most of my questions had to do with how they're helping, you know, sustainable development goals and how they're helping with international development in Western Hemisphere countries. But I thought they really don't do that. It's, it's more an engagement, stakeholder engagement, and finding similarities between countries so that they can work together and support each other. And they depend on other organizations for development. Hi, my name is Lakshmi. I'm 27 from Ottawa, currently working in Toronto as a policy advisor for the Ministry of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. Um, my main role has to do with research on how to better develop programs and policies to help support entrepreneurs in Ontario. So what really attracted me to this opportunity at YDC was my interest in international development and economic sustainability and understanding how international organizations work. Uh, World Bank and IMF are looked upon by all organizations, so really being here and understanding what type of research that they're doing and like best practices and recognizing the role that Canada plays and like the big picture. I was also really interested in just meeting other policy professionals and really engaging and connecting with them. And what I want to get out of this is, well, not only understanding what role Canada plays, but what role I play in policy and in the world and understanding my purpose. Friday is already here. It has been a whirlwind of the week. We're already headed back to Canada tomorrow, but it feels like we just got here. We're so grateful for this opportunity to have had great conversations with amazing organizations. And Friday is definitely ending off on a high note. We met with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, fellow youth delegates from Brazil, and attended a great session on the future of development. In the morning, we met with Garji Gosh and Ryan McMaster, coincidentally fellow Canadians who worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In order to enhance global health and reduce extreme poverty, the foundation establishes policies and develops concessional grants in partnership with governments in order to create innovative solutions. One example of this is their WASH program. Um, let's step back a bit and let's see how the systematic approach starts. So in 2015, in the context of the financing for development of the embracement of the SDGs, the fund came out in this arena, making clear that as a financial institution with a mandate, primary mandate of maintaining macroeconomic and financial stability at the global and domestic level. For us, our main point and issue for development that we see is maintaining macroeconomic and financial stability and fostering growth. Now, this is a necessary condition is not the old story, but this is a necessary condition. Because we have seen in many countries that with the crisis, years and years of development has been wiped out in a second. And the country goes back. And then to reconstruct, it takes a long time, longer than what we have seen before. So macroeconomic stability is really the first step. And there where we really, the space we operate, we are not a development bank. And we come from this macroeconomic perspective. 
In the institution in 2015, what we have also committed to a number of initiatives that relate to our work. And here is where gender and inequality comes in, among others. And in the space of gender inequality, we have demonstrated with our work, and here our speakers have also recognized the importance of these issues for macroeconomic stability. So I'm Julia I'm from Brazil, and I'm here representing an institute called Global Attitude through a program, Civil Diplomacy, which intends to put Brazilian youth in the map when it comes to international affairs and international trade and politics in general, because we find that there is a lack of Brazilian representation in general and multilateral organizations and multilateral debates, and mostly when it comes to youth. So as youth is going to be policy makers and decision makers in the future, so we think that Brazilian youth really needs to engage on it. We've been here for the IMF and World Bank annual meeting of this year, so we're mostly we're trying to see how we can improve Brazilian landscape, Brazilian action in international trade and global supply chains. Brazil has to a great issue when it comes to development. There is only a very tiny portion of Brazil that actually takes part in trade and the economic GDP of the country. So we really need to think about how we're going to include the rest of the country in this. What came to my attention the most was really attending issues such as gender, gender inclusion issues, youth. It really, um, there are a lot of panels about integrating youth and also about innovation. And innovation, I think, is the word of the moment. It's like the trendy word. And when it comes to trade in the countries in development, it's a worry because when we have already a big portion of the population that is not working, a big unemployment levels, and we are talking about innovation mostly, like automating production, it's kind of an issue. So we really need to think about how we're going to deal with this trade-off. So we need to definitely be in the debate. <laughs> Uh, share of a pie, if the, if the pie as a whole is small, uh, then uh, it's a small piece. Uh, so we need to get beyond looking at the size of uh, the share of the pies and, uh, and looking at the size of government budgets overall. And so we're looking in detail at these three critical actors uh, areas: the crucial role of expanding uh, domestic tax bases, the importance of rescheduling debt and the crucial importance of ending austerity. Um, I will talk very briefly about the tax and the debt and then say a little bit more about austerity. Uh, we've been looking at, you know, the tax to GDP uh, is sort of a fairly crude measure of, of what's happening with the tax base of a country, but it is nevertheless an important indicator. In low-income countries, about 16% tax to GDP ratio are just not in a position to provide universal social services. We've done some recent research that shows that actually countries can rapidly expand their tax to GDP ratio. There's a number of countries that have done it, 5% or 8% within a short period of time. Uh, and we've also done research that shows that you can do so in a progressive way. That is making sure that you're not just expanding using the traditional uh, forms that the IMF has done recommend of uh, use of, of uh, VAT, for example, but you can actually expand the tax base in a progressive way. And that, that will be one of the most transformative ways to uh, be able to expand the pool of resources available for investment 
in all public services. But I would say I think probably Irene's in a better place to talk in more detail about tax. I'm, I'm a recent convert to this issue and increasingly have be begun to realize the importance of it you know, to everybody's lives. From all that we've heard from, from, the, from the two first panelists, it, it's, it's quite evident, and also from the work that I'm sure many of you are doing, it's quite evident that this there's, there's something wrong structurally. This situation is not sustainable. It's not working for many countries. I'm from Uganda, you know, in Africa, and we've seen this for 30 or 40 years. It's not working in many of our countries. And increasingly, this is spreading from the global south to, to the global north as well. So we see increasing inequality in country, and this is both in the south and north, and the north but also uh, gaps between countries. And so how does this all, all relate to tax? I think that the fundamental thing, you know, which David made very clear, is that governments, states have a role to play. And they really need to be at the core of, of development, at the center of development. They have a role to play and they cannot deliver on those roles and provide services, um, carry out programs without resources. I mean, that is basic. Everybody knows that. Uh, but the challenge that has happened over time is that the resources available to many states, particularly uh, developing countries, have increasingly declined and some of the numbers have been given. Uh, and what's been happening over time is that the trend has been away from uh, fairer taxation systems that look at ability to pay of everybody and, and tax those who have more wealth more highly, whether individuals or corporations away from that to more regressive systems where the burden of taxation is largely on the back of ordinary people, whether it's the middle class or the poor. Uh, and so we see uh, much more of consumption taxes, VAT, for example, which disproportionately affects the poor. And so that is the challenge around progressive tax and why it's important. On the importance of this, it, it is not only for economic reasons, and which are really important, you know, because of the impact on the lives of people who have more to pay that they can afford, whether it affects their education or health or, or, or anything else, food and so on. But from the perspective of policymakers, and, and this is something that not only developing country policymakers need to think about, but also uh, rich countries, is that this contributes to social unrest and political consequence. And all over the world, increasingly, you see more and more countries where there is social unrest, there is political unrest, because of the unfair system around taxation. We hope you enjoyed being a fly on the wall on our journey through international politics at the World Bank IMF annual meetings. We would like to take this opportunity to thank Young Diplomats of Canada for this incredible opportunity to grow both personally and professionally while representing the views of Canadian youth on the international stage. Stay tuned for the next episode of Beyond the Headlines. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you join us next week as we continue to take policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Thank you.